I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one close to you in the pew. The scripture will also be on the screen. But we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, or maybe we've been running through uh, the Gospel of Mark leading up to Easter. And in the first 10 chapters, uh, Mark summarizes the three years of Jesus' preaching and teaching and healing ministry. And starting in chapter 11, which is where we were last week, we see Mark zero in and begin to focus on the events of just one week. And that week is, of course, the week that ends with Jesus' crucifixion and his death. And the next week begins on the first day of the week with his glorious resurrection from the dead, which we will celebrate, obviously, on Easter. And, of course, we celebrate it every Sunday because Jesus lives. And last week, we saw kind of a a climactic point in the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders all along uh, throughout his ministry. Uh, The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders have been opposing Jesus all along. But when he goes public with his authority as king and priest and prophet, as he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, as he kicks people out of the temple for turning the Father's house into a marketplace when it was supposed to be a, a house of prayer for all nations, and we see Jesus reject uh, the, the elders' challenge to his authority. We now see that they, these religious leaders hate Jesus more than ever, and they are conspiring to kill him. But a lot of the people are following Jesus, and they fear the people. So the first step in getting Jesus is to get him to misstep, to get him to say something blasphemous, to say something wrong, something that can be the basis for accusation. So in our text this morning, they're going to send various different groups of, their, um, of the leadership in uh, Jewish religion. And they're going to try to trick him and confuse him and trap him. But what, we'll, what we're going to see this morning in our text is a demonstration of what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Jesus is the very wisdom of God, the revelation of the wisdom of God. And if we want to be wise, we will listen to him. Remembering of the words of the Father at the transfiguration, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Before we listen and get into our text, let's ask the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word that You have inspired that witnesses to the reality of Your Son and His wisdom. Lord, I pray now that we would learn Your wisdom, that we would listen well to our Lord and our Savior and our King and our Teacher. And Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would lead us into all truth as Jesus promised. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There is only one hero in the Bible. One hero in the Bible. We might hold other people up as heroes, people to be emulated, people who are great heroes of the past. But the Bible only really tells us about one hero. His name is what? His name is Jesus. And everybody else did some pretty terrible things. And that would include people like King David. Some of you know the story of King David. He was a little shepherd boy that the Lord anointed king instead of the king's son. And he did amazing things like kill the the giant Goliath. And he did eventually become king of Israel, God's people. And, um, And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. That he loved the Lord with all of his heart. And yet... 
And yet David one day saw a woman that he wanted. And it didn't matter that she was married. And it didn't matter that it was against the law. And it didn't matter that he had absolute power and that she had no power. He was going to have her. So he sinned against God. He sinned against himself. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own wife, which was actually nothing new because against God's law, he married multiple different women. And he sinned against Uriah's, I mean, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And when Bathsheba got pregnant as a result of David's sin, he doubled down and made sure that Uriah was placed in a position in a battle that he would be killed. And he added to his adultery with murder. And God loves us, and therefore he is unwilling to leave us in the midst of our grievous sin. And so what does God do? He sends a prophet to David, a prophet named Nathan, And Nathan approaches David, and he doesn't just say, David, you have sinned, you need to repent. Instead, he tells a parable. He says there was a rich man who had lots of stuff. He had a big house, he had lots of livestock and herds, many, many lambs. And there was also a poor man. And this poor man didn't have any of that. All he had was one little girl baby lamb, a ewe. And he fed her from his table, and he gave her to drink from his cup, and she slept in his arms. And the text even says, she was like a daughter to him. And then a traveler comes into town, and he's going to visit the wealthy man and come to his house. And because the wealthy man doesn't want to expend his own herds and flocks, because he doesn't want to kill one of his sheep, he goes and takes the poor man's little lamb. And he slaughters it, and he cooks it up, and he feeds it to his guest. And when Nathan tells this story, the text tells us that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he tells Nathan, as sure as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Nathan had the wisdom to use a parable to expose the injustice of David's sin. If he had simply told David, you've sinned and you need to repent, David's heart would have hardened. And yet through this parable, he got David on God's side and then revealed that he was the man who was taking advantage of the poor man, Uriah, and stealing his lamb. And so in the same way, in verses 1 through 12 here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus uses a parable to expose the injustice of Israel's religious establishment, both in his day and in all the centuries before. And in this story that Jesus tells, we see that Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding history. That Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding history. Look with me at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved what? A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us 
kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against who? Against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding history. The Jews had a certain, these religious leaders had a certain view of their own history, and it was glorious, and they were a part of that. But Jesus tells a parable, and in the parable, he tells the entire history of God's people using the very familiar metaphor from the Old Testament of Israel as a vineyard. It especially draws on Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, if you want to look that up. But God plants Israel. He plants the vineyard. He protects the vineyard, and He chooses tenants. These religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to work the vineyard. He makes them stewards of what is rightfully His to cultivate and to grow fruit for Him in His vineyard, Israel. Israel, the vineyard. The tenants are the religious leaders who are to produce fruit for the owner, who is God. And the owner of the vineyard sends his, his servant, a prophet, to bring him some of the fruit that was, be, was to be produced. And what do they do? They beat him about the head and shoulders and kick him out. And this happens again. And it happens again and again. And with great patience, the owner continually sends servants or prophets to the tenants to get some of the fruit that was supposed to be produced for him. Some of them they beat Some of them, they kill. But no fruit is given to the rightful owner. And this is a powerful picture of Israel's history. God is faithful to His people, especially the religious leaders are unfaithful. They do not bear fruit or they keep the fruit for themselves. And when God sends His prophets to remind them of their purpose, those prophets are rejected and some are even killed. Well, the landowner finally decides to send one more person. Who is it? His son. His beloved son. Does that remind you of anyone? And when the son comes, he thinks, surely they will respect the son of the owner. But what they want, what is his. So what do they do? They kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus asks, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do? Well, you're not going to get the inheritance that you want. Instead, you're going to get vengeance. The owner of the vineyard is going to destroy these unrighteous tenants. And he is going to give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And Jesus quotes directly from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus himself is claiming to be the fulfillment of this promise. That he who was rejected has become the cornerstone of God's people. Jesus prophesies his own rejection and murder at the hands of these leaders. And says that they will be destroyed. And that the vineyard of God's people is going to be given to others. What we know happened here is that the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 AD as a result of this prophecy and God's wrath against Israel for their rejection of the stone that has become the chief cornerstone and the vineyard has been given to others it has been given to the Gentiles 
In one little story, Jesus gives the entire scope of human history from the beginning up to the moment and even accurately predicts the future. How? How can he do that? Because he is the wisdom of God. And when we look at history, we can only see it rightly in light of him. Jesus is the one who gives all of history meaning. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees understand that this story is about them. When Nathan told David that he was the man that his parable was about, David responded with brokenheartedness and true repentance. How do these leaders respond? Well, their hearts are further hardened. And because they want to have Jesus arrested and hopefully killed, they further seek to trap him in his words. Brothers and sisters, I think we're prone when we look at the religious leaders in the New Testament or when we look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we're prone to think, what was wrong with those people? We need to be careful about that. Because Israel's story is our story. They were the vineyard. We are the vineyard. We are the new tenants to whom the vineyard has been entrusted. And the question for us is the same as the question to them. Will we listen to the wisdom of the owner's beloved son? Or like these leaders, are we so intent on our own wisdom that we would throw him out? Back Creek, this Jesus that we have seen in chapter after chapter of Mark's gospel, if he were to come to us, would he be welcome in our church? Or would he be thrown out? If Jesus came to Back Creek Church, would he find the fruit that is to be given to the Father? Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding history. In the next section, we see that Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom with regard to politics. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding politics. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and they said to him, He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are whose? Caesar's and to God the things that are whose God's and they marveled at him a marvel because these two groups are not politically compatible Uh, the Pharisees were uh, an aristocratic group they were opposed to Rome uh, but they weren't revolutionary about it but they certainly did not like or approve Roman occupation of Israel they thought that they should be self-governed and the Herodians because of uh, political benefit and material benefit were very much in league with Rome and so you have two groups that naturally are politically opposed diametrically opposed politically in fact if it were today these two groups will be yelling at each other on Facebook and yet even though they are politically incompatible they come together to oppose Jesus and trap him with a politically charged question First, they lead with dishonest flattery. It says Jesus perceives their hypocrisy. But then here's their question. 
Should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? And this is the perfect question. And they think they have Jesus because however he answers, one of those groups will not be pleased. Because if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then he's a capitulator to Rome like the Herodians. And they approve of him, but the Pharisees will not. But if he says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he's an insurrectionist and stands with the Pharisees in a revolutionary way, and the Herodians will not be pleased with him. He can't win, so they think. But Jesus demonstrates superior political wisdom. He knows that they are hypocrites seeking to trap him. He asks, why put me to the test? Give me a coin. And they bring him a denarius, which was about the equivalent of a a day's wages. And he says, okay, whose picture and inscription is on this coin? And they answer rightly, Caesar's. And behold, God's wisdom regarding politics. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this wisdom. What belongs to God? That is not a rhetorical question. What belongs to God? Okay, so what do we owe God? Everything. All honor, all submission, all obedience, all loyalty, and all of our resources. Give to God the things that are, to God, that are God's, and that is everything. Now, as a part of giving to God the things that are God's, we honor those that by His sovereign authority, He has set in governmental or political authority over us. We are first and ultimately honoring God when we submit to our governing authorities including paying taxes, as long as they do not require us to violate God's law. When a human government requires us to violate God's law, we honor God by disobeying an unjust law and accepting the consequences peacefully that may come to us. We trust Him with the results. And it's a question of priority. And right now, I think it is of utmost importance for us to understand and apply Jesus' principles here to our political parties and ideologies. As Christians, we must not see aligning with a particular political party as an expression of faithfulness to God. Now, we are free to align with a political party. We are absolutely free to do that, but... Our priority is always God and His Word to us. And that means that we need to listen more to God speaking through His Word and by His Spirit than we listen to our favorite news channel and commentator. We ought to predicate our positions on the issues through the wisdom we glean from God's self-revelation in the Word. We must refuse Refuse to allow political disagreement to cause any kind of division within our faith family. We must honor and love those who differ from us and hold those accountable who claim to represent us. We must trust God with the future of our nations and our world rather than believe that our side is going to save us and their side wants to destroy us. We cannot give what rightfully belongs to God, to party or to ideology or even to country. 
We cannot invest fully in any party, any institution, or any ideology because everything we are and everything we have belongs first to whom? To God. They asked Jesus this question believing that they got him. And they walk away marveling at his superior wisdom regarding politics. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom in history and politics. And next we see that Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding theology. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding theology. Look at verses 18 through 27. And also we'll look at 35 through 37. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no what? They say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For, he, for the seven had her as, as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the, the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And moving down to verse 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, I'm sorry, David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. All right, the religious leaders think we couldn't get him on history and we couldn't get him on politics. Let's get him on theology. And this time it's the Sadducees, and they're a a wealthy group, and they're very conservative in their theology, so much so that they deny the authority of most of the Old Testament. They only receive the Pentateuch, the first five books. And they do not believe that the Scriptures teach a resurrection from the dead. So what is it they ask Jesus about? A resurrection. We'll get you, you resurrection-proclaiming fraud. Moses gave us the law about leveret marriage so that if there's a widow whose husband has died and he gave her no offspring, then the brother should marry her so that he can produce offspring for her, someone to take care of her. It's a matter of justice for the widow. And they use it as a trap. And they say, brother after brother marries her and dies in accordance with the law, and none of them leave offspring. And finally, the woman dies. So, Jesus, you believe in a resurrection of the body. So, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? You can almost feel the smugness radiating from them. And Jesus demonstrates superior theological wisdom. He says, you are wrong because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. There will be a resurrection from the dead. And it's even present in the five books that you accept. Remember God when He spoke to your boy Moses out of the burning bush? What did He say? I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, what did He say? I I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
See, they were not dead, even though the event with Moses and the bush happened over 400 years after the last one died. They were not dead. They were alive because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. God is their God in the present. They are alive when God speaks to Moses, not dead. And this prefigures the hope of the resurrection. Not only will their souls go on, but one day their bodies will be raised as well because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. There is resurrection. It's even in the books that you mention, that you honor. But, to your question about marriage, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, your question is theological nonsense, because in the resurrection, the purpose of earthly marriage will be fulfilled in the one marriage between Christ and his bride, his people, the church. This woman, this widow, She won't be married to any of the brothers in heaven because with the rest of the church, she is going to be married to Christ. And we want to avoid any unhelpful speculation here about the age to come. But we do know that the Bible says that we will know as we are known that our relationships in this world will move into the next world, will go on in the resurrection, but they will be different in nature. Relating to one another in the new heavens and the new earth will be better than anything we can imagine here. And it will be closer. We will have relationships with one another that will be closer than even the best earthly marriage. Because all sin and all shame and all barriers will finally and fully be gone. How does Jesus have the authority to make such theological proclamations about the resurrection, about Moses? Well, it's in those verses 35 through 37. It's because not only is he David's son, which was acknowledged in his triumphant ride into Jerusalem where people were saying, Hosanna, save us, son of our father David. Not only is he David's son, he's also David's Lord. And he quotes directly from Psalm 110. Jesus claiming right here in this text that he is the pre-existent Lord of David. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms to the crowds, I am God. And that's why when there are people in the world who will happily acknowledge that Jesus had superior wisdom. They'll say Jesus was superiorly wise about history and about politics and about whatever else you want to bring up. But he's not God. He was just a good teacher. And C.S. Lewis puts it to us like this. Well, no, Jesus doesn't give us the option of saying that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. See, If he was a good moral teacher, but he claimed to be God, he was either a liar or he was a lunatic. And so he can't be a good moral teacher. The only other option left to us is that he is who he claimed to be, that he is Lord. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom in history and politics and theology. And next we see that Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding philosophy. Look with me at 28 through 34 And then 38 through 40. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. Look down at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Philosophy attempts to address the big questions of reality and human existence. And one of the scribes has just this sort of question for Jesus. It's a religiously philosophical question in that it has to do with God's law, but it deals with the ultimate purpose of human existence. What are we here for? What is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the purpose of human existence? And Jesus identifies the greatest commandment and summarizes all the law and the prophets, demonstrating and declaring the end for which we were created. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the greatest philosophy that we could ever live our lives by. Why are we here? To love God. What should we do? Whatever love for God demands. And whatever love for neighbor demands. Jesus also gives here an example of a worthless philosophy. It is very religious. But in pretending to worship God, the scribes are really worshiping who? Themselves. Their philosophy of life is loving themselves with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, which leads to recognition and honor and religious displays in this life, failure to love their vulnerable neighbors, they devour widows' houses, and, Jesus says, in eternity, greater condemnation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us two options for our philosophy of life here. We can either have at the center of our philosophy of life God first and others second, or we can have at the center of our philosophy of life ourselves. Which is it? Which is ours? Jesus demonstrates superior historical, political, theological, and philosophical wisdom. And lastly, we see that Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding economics. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom regarding economics. Look at verse 41 to the end. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, everything she had to live on. God's economy functions in a way that is counterintuitive to the way that we naturally and the way that we are taught to view money and possessions. See, in Jesus' economy, your wealth is not determined by what you have, but by what you give. 
And the value of what you give is not determined by the dollar amount, but by the amount of devotion that you give it with. I want to say that again. In Jesus' economy, your wealth is not determined by what you have, but by what you give. And what you give is not, the value of what you give is not determined by how many dollars you put in, but the devotion with which you give to God's kingdom. Our relationship to economics and money needs to be radically challenged and transformed by Jesus. What if we defined wealth by what we were able to give for the sake of God's kingdom? And what if what we were able to give was actually not the ceiling, but the floor? What if our devotion to God was so total and our hands were so open to Him that we were willing to give in ways that the world and perhaps even Christian financial gurus on the radio would say, that's foolish. Brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you. I, I don't think we're there yet, but I'm, I'm beginning to see signs here at Back Creek. I don't think we've announced this publicly yet, and I forgot to do it in the 9 o'clock service. But, you know, we finished 2018 with a 30000 dollar surplus. Because of your sacrificial giving. And we started this year uh, pretty, pretty, pretty low, pretty behind our giving. But you can see, if you look in your bullets, and in March, we have completely caught up and surpassed that two budget. I believe that our view of economics, our view of money and possessions, our view of what it means to have wealth and to give is being transformed by the Word of God to be used for the kingdom. But I don't want us to be satisfied with it. I want us to hear over and over again the wisdom of Jesus regarding money. Jesus demonstrates superior wisdom in all of these areas. And honestly, in preparing this message, I had to come face to face with my own poverty of wisdom. The infinite divine wisdom of Jesus challenges all of my preconceived notions and inclinations and my desires and my actions at every turn. And as I was studying for this message, I felt alternatively ignorant and convicted and wicked and wrong and exposed. I honestly wanted to just tell Jesus, can we skip to 13 because I don't want to preach this. But I've also been given the gift of seeing Jesus with fresh eyes. And I've heard the very wisdom of God in history and politics and theology and philosophy and economics from his lips. And I am in awe and I am humbled to the dirt. But by God's grace through the gospel, I have also seen myself through the all wise eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I see there. He loves me. In my ignorance, in my foolishness, in my sinfulness, in my weakness, He loves me. And He came to save me by living out a life of perfect wisdom for my foolishness, a life of perfect righteousness for my rebellion, a life of perfect love for my failure to love, and a perfect victory for my defeat. He died on the cross for my sins and rose to defeat my enemies, Satan, death, and sin forever. And I am His. And therefore, I want to spend my life listening to and learning from His wisdom, imitating His life, and growing in my love for Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are astounded by your wisdom. And you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, I pray that we would see this rightly. Yes, that we would acknowledge the common grace that is revealed in your creation. Lord, that there is so much we can learn from others who have learned from your creation. And yet, Lord, the ultimate place that we go for wisdom, the ultimate place where we go to learn of the fundamental realities of this life is the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullest and most beautiful revelation of God that could ever be. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus with fresh eyes. That we would see that though he is all wise, he still loves us. And he died for us. And he rose for us. And he is ever at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, pleading his sacrifice and blood so that we might become wise and that we might become the very righteousness of God. Lord, thank you for the hope and the truth and the joy of the gospel. And I pray today that even as we look to Jesus for wisdom, that we would look even more to him for salvation. And we ask all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together responding to God's word and song.